This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Robin and Valerie International Film Festival. AI art in game products. And Poland's January Uprising. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dino-rific? I do dare say dino-rific. There's the plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. The whir of the projector, whatever that sticky stuff is under your feet, the light stabbing through the darkness are all irrelevant because today's cinema hut takes place not in the storied confines of the Toronto movie theater that is famous, but in the even more famous living room of Robin and Valerie Laws, cinephiles, auteurs, and in one case, at least co-host of this beloved podcast, because Robin, we are going to talk about the inaugural uh, the successful, the triumphant even, Robin and Valerie International Film Fest. Uh, pause for riotous applause and go. Right. So, uh, long-time listeners and, and readers of my blog, even before the podcast, in fact, all the way back to when I was contributing to uh, Alarms and Excursions, know that I'm a uh, annual film goer to the Toronto International Film Festival, or was until... The end of last year's festival, when Valerie and I both looked at each other afterwards and said, you know what? We're out. And we've talked about that decision uh, previously, but uh, briefly, last year, it was still a, a hybrid live or streamed event. Turned out uh, you could only get half the number of screenings we had gotten from them the previous year. And so I filled out the rest of the time we would normally spend, because we normally see 45 movies at a, a regular TIFF, running from venue to venue. Well, this time I just added things on streaming, and it turned out my choices had a much higher hit rate than the ones uh, at TIFF. Because Wild. Uh, over the years, they've become more and more focused on premieres. If it's not a new movie that hasn't played anywhere else except possibly Venice, or maybe Telluride, which they don't like to acknowledge, they don't want it. And that means that you know, when we first fell in love in the fest with the festival in the uh, in the eighties, a this was the only way, quite often, to see films by international directors. You get two shots at them at the festival; they wouldn't necessarily all come around again. They certainly wouldn't, and it was a VHS era, so you really didn't have a shot at things. Well, now many of the high-profile things uh, being promoted at TIFF this year were slated for streaming services because theatrical has just gone to blockbusters, basically, and. Now, the problem is not uh, having access to interesting, offbeat, art house films and the sorts of films that play this festival circuit, but knowing which ones to pick. And having gone to TIFF for so many years, I felt, hey, I think I could do this. 
And indeed, uh, so we picked 45 titles, uh, mostly recent, some of them relatively well-known if you're into art house titles, some of them you've seen already, Ken. Yep. And I scheduled 45 of them, and it's, and guess what? There were the same three masterpieces that I normally get in an average TIFF, but what there wasn't were the duds. Yeah, it was, was the, the dross uh, trailing out at the end, uh, a languid look at Kazakhstan that tells you more about yourself than it does about anything. Yes, exactly. And... So there, yeah, there was one film I disliked, and even that one was not a, oh my gosh, what am I even watching? It was like, oh, this is a well-made, dumb movie that yeah, I kind of heard right. at. So we judged this as success, and even more so, uh, one of the frustrations, I think, for people listening over the years is they hear cool films that they might want to see, and then it's another three to 18 months before they become available. By then, you've forgotten I recommended them, whereas all of these are available in Canada, there will be some, depending what territory you're in, of course, there are some vagaries there as to what you'll be able to find. But these are all available either on subscription platforms or for standard rental prices on VOD. Right. And before we dive in, obviously, many listeners may think, well, we've been loyal listeners of Ken and Robin. We're almost as good as Ken and Robin at picking movies. We'd like to do that ourselves. So just sort of walk us briefly through things like... Uh, criteria and selection and how many Valerie got to pick, because I noticed there were not a ton of romantic comedies or Bollywood films on your list, Robin, which implies maybe you bigfooted the lovely Valerie a little bit. Uh, well, indeed, I did pick some lighter things that were the kinds of things that a particular programmer uh, would program that were there for Valerie. Mm -hmm. But TIFF itself does not. Uh, it used to have a few Bollywood titles, but it's kind of stopped showing them. Mm -hmm. So the idea was obviously to pick something that, you know, if there was a title that neither of us would like, yeah, why watch it? it. <laughs> yeah. So there's also not a lot of hard horror mm -hmm. on the list. And I did try to pick some fun ones that she would like, but I also like them. Yeah. Because a good fun movie is Everyone a should movie. like. Yeah. 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 You get somebody who doesn't like uh, Joe versus the Volcano, just politely uh, show them the door and erase them from your phone. That's right. simple. And, and, you know, back in the days when we went to TIFF, which is a thing I say now, we <laughs> would split up and not always see the same movies. But I tried to come up with something that was sort of mostly kind of in between in our, our taste, but also the other criteria was it would have to be something that could have played at, at TIFF at some point. Right. And sometimes did. So it, it should feel like a festival, not like something else. Right. And right. of course, TIFF has uh, midnight madness. Chicago has the after dark. So plenty of festivals have strong or strong ish horror and genre tracks. And so you don't have to, it ha doesn't have to entirely be grown up stuff. It just all has to be ideally well-made and interesting, right? Right. And one thing where we deviated, for example, from TIFF, and we're both happy about that, was instead of there being two Korean movies, yes. <laughs> there were five. Right. Much better. Much better ratio. All yes. right. With that brief programming note, let us dive into this immense list of films and just let everyone know it's going to be a double segment. So strap in. I guess let's begin with uh, the first of your pinnacles. I slagged off a little bit on Kazakhstan, but you know, like every country, Kazakhstan gives with one hand and takes with yeah. another. Well, the last Kazakh movie I saw was, as you described, I mm -hmm. liked it. It ended with a nice epiphany at the end, but it was a little developing world cinema, driving around on a road, sort of real social realism. Right. I mean, we, we, we don't like the terror. We don't like the war. But the Iranian film industry has also got a lot to answer for, in my opinion. But in this case, Kazakhstan presents us with The Legend of Tamiris, 
by Akan Satayev. And Tamiris is a historical or mostly historical character. So it's uh, in the great tradition of the, of the sword and sandal biopic. Is that what we're looking at? Yes. With a bit of an influence of Asian action cinema. Now mm. it's unlike now if mainland China had made this, there would be like weird fanciful gyrocopters and, and wuxia powers and people on wires. And that's not what this is, but it is a gigantic, thrilling historical epic. The good characters are good. The bad characters are bad. Uh, one of them is Cyrus of Persia. If you Ooh. know your history, you know, you know where this is going because mm-hmm. it's a historical epic, but it, it was amazing. It's a, like two and a half hours long, amazing production values, extremely skillfully made. It's a sensibility that you haven't quite seen before, but also a, you know, commercial film that is uh, big and bold, has the best wedding proposal scene I've seen in cinema in, in many a year and staggeringly large production values. Mm-hmm. So it is true that if someone is not from Kazakhstan, that I am the one who is most up for this film, except also can you and everyone else who listens to this podcast right. is yeah. up for this movie. No, I'm uh, definitely it's it's on my short short list. Possibly if I do my own film fest uh, later on this month or next month. So there was a great proof of concept that I could find a, a film by scouting uh, that I hadn't heard of that I haven't really heard people talk about that just blew us both away and was an absolute banger apparently in the grand tradition of Cecil B. DeMille, but with much more blood. And I guess uh, briefly, let's just address the goodness gracious, Ken, you were so right segment in which (laughs) you saw two of my uh, one highly recommended, almost pinnacle and one absolute pinnacle. uh, And I speak of Drive My Car by Ryosuke Hamaguchi and uh, my pinnacle one, Petit Maman by the great, the wonderful, the goddess that is Celine Sciamma. And uh, uh, tell tell everyone how right I was, Robin. Yes. Uh, well, uh, not only you, but critics. Other film critics, were, yes, are also fine. Correct. These are widely acclaimed uh, films, but maybe you, the listener, has have missed them in the vast deluge of, of things that are now available on streaming. So uh, Drive My Car is a chronologically long but somehow absorbing drama about a, a theater writer-director who, uh, after a, a long sort of prelude uh, sequence that sets up his tragedy uh, winds <laughs> a, up being a 45 minute prelude sequence <laughs> winds up being driven around uh, by a professional driver who's who's hired for insurance reasons essentially when he goes to uh, work in a regional theater and it's a story of sort of how sort of taciturn closed off people can find a kindred spirit without uh, being untaciturn and, and unclosed off at the end so it's a, a really mature and complex and multi-leveled uh, version of that sort of baseline narrative structure. Petite Maman is a, uh, a French film about an eight-year-old girl who uh, goes to visit her grandmother's house for the last time after uh, it's being packed up because she's just passed away. And she's able to walk behind uh, the garden and somehow walk into the same house again, except that same house is when her mother was an eight-year-old. And so this is a genre adjacent. It's a story of the fantastic, mm-hmm. not at magic realist as some people mislabel it, but rather a drama that takes one uh, extraordinary, impossible thing for granted as part of its realism. And uh, it's extremely uh, beautiful and well balanced, and uh, especially interesting for the way that uh, Skiyama writes an intelligent eight year old who's actually an eight year old and mm-hmm. not just a adult smartass. Right. Yeah. It's um, everything about it. You're, 
just constantly amazed that she was able to get the child's eye view of things, not just so accurate because none of us are eight year olds, but so true as opposed to being just little uh, mouthpieces for some other agenda. It was, it felt very, very actual, even though, or perhaps even because of the one absolutely impossible thing that happens. And uh, I said Scalene Shiyama at the front, so you know that it's gorgeous, you know that it's perfectly shot, perfectly directed, and that at one point there will be a moment where your whole soul will leave your body during the film. And uh, rather than spoil it, we will move on to your whole body being twisted around and messed up, because Robin, you are, you know, as a Canadian and as a auteur of the horror, a horrorist, you are I believe constitutionally required. I think Pierre Trudeau comes to your house. The ghost of Pierre Trudeau comes uh, to your house. Legally forced. It is, it is true spiritual kinship. And makes you watch the new David Cronenberg. And the new David Cronenberg is Crimes of the Future, Robin. So tell us about these crimes. Uh, right. So this is uh, shares the same name as his very first experimental film that he made as a student. And it is one about uh, takes the metaphor of artistic creation uh, leading to uh, literal bodily malformation that is established in uh, Videodrome and then in Existence and brings it to the world of performance art. Uh, so Crimes of the Future has Viggo Mortensen and uh, Leah Seydoux and features uh, sort of a, a dreamy, weird version of uh, all, you know, extra weird version of his world. Uh, the thriller plot elements are there, but the thriller momentum isn't. It's a a strange, you know, distressing amplification of his usual themes. And one in which it reminds you that lots of other people are influenced by Cronenberg and say they're doing body horror, but what they miss, they, what they're doing is the fly, right? They mm -hmm. mean, oh, this yeah. is kind of goopy. Yeah. Um, or it's about, you know, sort of bodily transformation. But the emotional and social malformation that goes with it is really the part of the uh, the horror. And so Mortensen plays a character who is uh, in the near future, who is innovatively growing uh, new organs in a world where almost no one suffers pain and uh, making that uh, and his uh, partner's vivisection of him at performances the center of his art. So uh, it's got every possible, you know, content warning on it. <laughs> but if you're uh, in for uh, strong stuff that is genuinely... Uh, disturbing and also dreamlike uh, crimes of the future uh, really worked on me as a Cronenberg fan. All right. Now, I guess the as opposite of that movie as you could get while still being a very good movie would be the next one. Official competition by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat, a Spanish film starring Penelope Cruz. Is there even more reason to see it than that? Antonio Banderas as well. Ah, and also we the acclaimed Argentine actor Oscar Martinez, who if you've seen Argentinian movies, you've seen him a bunch of times. So this was another example of sort of a great discovery that was totally not on my radar uh, when I started programming uh, these titles. Uh, so basically, two acting titans, uh, one a Hollywood star played by Banderas, uh, the other a uh, pretentious uh, theatrical actor played by Martinez, gather together in this vast empty modernist building uh, to be directed in rehearsals by Penelope Cruz for a, a film that they are going to make. And it is a hilarious lampoon of artistic foible and ego uh, with some amazing visual scenes on top of that. With So it has this incredibly beautiful look to it and this fabulous barb humor. So it combines uh, sort of the, the best 
of uh, cinema and art house with a uh, hilarious uh, script and very funny performances by all three leads. Fantastic. On the topic of directors that one watches to be a entire person, uh, we continue with the new Werner Herzog, or by new, I mean three years old at this point, Nomad in the footsteps of Bruce Chatwin. Uh, tell everyone who Bruce Chatwin is and why does Werner Herzog care? So uh, Bruce Chatwin was a novelist and travel writer who uh, died of AIDS, I think, in the 90s, but was a great friend of uh, Herzog's and a kindred spirit, both in a feeling for travel and adventure and going places and going to extreme places. Uh, but also uh, Chatwin has been accused by others of stretching the truth and, of course, Herzog says that is because he was finding the true truth behind the elevated truth. And so he basically goes around the world retracing trips that uh, Chatwin uh, went on. And of course, that means finding out about uh, song lines in Australia and lay lines uh, in England and revisiting uh, his 87 film Cobra Verde, which was based on a Chatwin novel. And Herzog keeps saying he doesn't want this film to be about him. He doesn't want to be the protagonist of this film. But because he's making a film about a person who he uh, really loved, about his spiritual brother, it also is the most movingly revelatory uh, about him. And in the general class of moving revelations, but in an entirely different class of moving revelations, but still on the directors of note category uh you caught the sexy violent new paul verhoeven movie but i said or for new short paul verhoeven movie, <laughs> new paul verhoeven movie. benedetta uh which is you know nunsploitation like they used to do in the 1780s yes it is absolutely a nunsploitation movie because uh verhoeven is all about exploitation so virginie efira uh, plays a young nun who has both visions and the hots for another nun and combines those two things to rise politically and take over her abbey, but she has uh, enemies during the Counter-Reformation. And uh, this is based on a, a serious scholarly historical uh, work of nonfiction, but it is anything but serious and scholarly. It is a farrago of uh, luridness and, and an increasingly sort of locked down world of cinema. I'm glad we uh, have at least still uh, Verhoeven to let his id out to spectacularly uh, romp around as, as it does in this tongue-in-cheek piece of art trash. <laughs> From Miraculous Visions to, I hope, nicer Miraculous Visions, we have Holy Emmy, Greek film by Araceli Lemos, who I have not heard of, but apparently we all should have. So this is a, a realist uh, film in which uh, something magical happens, or, or uh, depending on your faith beliefs, uh, something uh, divine happens because it's about, it's set in the Filipino community in Greece. So <laughs> although it's set in Greece and you hear the Greek language spoken at some points, it's mostly in Tagalog. Uh, and it's about a young woman who is beginning to manifest the same genuine healing powers that her uh, mother had uh, before she was forced to leave Greece and go back to the Philippines. And it's about her conflict of identity in determining exactly how she wants to use these powers because there's a local Greek woman who wants to kind of exploit them financially. Her sister wants uh, to sort of uh, have more control over this and just kind of coerce her into being more churchy. And the question is, how much is she going to use these powers and uh, who is she and how does she rationalize being torn between these two poles? So it's a naturalistic movie that creates a social milieu, but also 
uh, has uh, an element of the fantastic about it and uh, is extremely uh, well executed and memorable and has a great visual sense and a, a ability to create images on screen that elevate it above your typical sort of portrait of a social milieu film. And now it is almost cliche at this point for us to say South Korean thriller is wonderful, but South Korean thriller is wonderful. This is by Yoon Jong Bin, who I last, I believe saw with the Berlin file, which was a while ago. Now uh, it's the spy gone North and this is from 2018. So it should be very accessible. And it, uh, I assume is also super terrific. Yeah. And it's um, unlike the Berlin file, it's not a thriller action movie, but rather a thriller docudrama based on the, the real story of this former South Korean intelligence agent who uh, sort of created a whole fictional burnout from his agency in order to justify him going to Beijing to make business contacts with the North Koreans. And it has a really interesting twist to it in that his spy mission, which is ostensibly to find out about the North Korean nuke program, keeps getting derailed by his spy master's desire to use him to torque their domestic political opposition back home. So it's a spy thriller, but with very realistic politics in it. It's not just the generic evil CIA agents that you see in a Bourne movie, but uh, specifically sleazy real-life intelligence agents who sort of put him in a pickle. The scenes where he meets Kim Jong-il are fabulously surreal, although less surreal than the real story, which we should maybe cover in a in a Tradecraft Hut segment, sort of delves into the the phenomenon of the North Wind, where mysteriously, right before uh, many different Korean elections, the North Koreans would launch a provocation, which would push the voters from the liberal candidate back to the conservative security-oriented candidate and keep the status quo in power. Well, it turned out Kim was doing that because his putative enemies in the South were paying him (laughs) to, to, (laughs) to literally do that. And he did it enough times that people noticed and gave it a nickname, the North Wind. You know, the, the job's a job, right? Kim Jong-il, he's got to get paid just like the yeah, rest of dictators us. Dictators need money. Right, yeah. Continuing in South Korea, we move to Oh Sung Kwan, Midnight, and this looks like a crime thriller type thing going on. Yeah, so there's a lot of serial killer movies coming out of Korea right now, and the twist is always, how can we come up with a new flavor of serial killer movies. make it better than all other serial killer movies? Right. And this one, it's sort of a a version of Wait Until Dark uh, in that a young deaf woman who's like a customer service rep winds up seeing the face of the serial killer as he's captured his uh, scheduled next victim. And so he spends the rest of the movie, which doesn't literally occur in real time, but comes close to it without making a big deal of it. And he starts pursuing her uh, and uh, it's all about uh, the uh, and so it really is a thriller. It is a right. suspense thriller. It's about uh, the moment to moment of the chase and the cat and the mouse and the other sort of side characters and stuff. And it's just a really well executed version of of that thing. Well, before South Korea's uh, increasing supply of serial killers and uh, torn intelligence agents uh, catches on to our bit, uh, we should flee into a commercial where we are safe and loved. down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. 
clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. We return you once again, not to the storied That One Theater in Toronto, but to the storied Robin and Valerie's Living Room Theater, also in Toronto, as we continue the Robin and Valerie International Film Fest with mandatory Canadian content, Night Raiders by Dennis Goulet. And Robin, right. this is good. This was at TIFF last year. One thing I would I tried to avoid doing at TIFF was scheduling Canadian movies because half of them are bad <laughs> and also the good ones will come around again but sometimes you don't get around to seeing the good ones mm-hmm. and that's the case of night raiders which was at tiff last year this is a Cree dystopian nightmare thriller and it's about a uh, young girl who is in a metaphor for the residential schools ongoing not even a scandal since it was a practice that lasted uh, close to a century but it takes that political concern and in the grand science fiction tradition nerd tropes it into a futuristic uh, thriller and uh it's uh really interesting to see not only that cultural transposition of you know having this story told with Cree characters but also the way that the dystopian future is visually depicted is not with the sort of spectacular obvious visual sense that you see in a similar collapse society, say in Children of Men, which is production designed up the wazoo. But here, all of the CGI and matte work to introduce a futuristic elements makes it look just as crummy and down market as any other set in a sort of a social realist movie. So it's got a, a social realist dystopian uh, production design, which is interesting and refreshing. Continuing the thriller beat, this is a new thriller from uh, China, directed by Sam Kwa. Uh, Tell us about Sheep Without a Shepherd. Right, and this is actually a remake of a a Malayam film, uh, and the premise is that a guy who's like a provider of internet routers to hotels and stuff, just an ordinary Joe, his daughter kills her young abuser in order to protect her mom from him. And then he uh, realizes he he has to cover this up because in Thailand, especially if the victim's mother is a police inspector and the father is a prominent politician, you know that the self-defense defense is not going to fly. And so he's nuts for movies. So he uses the plot devices from a whole different series of movies to create an elaborate alibi for the entire family and then uh, the police chief, uh, played by Joan Chen, tries to crack through that. And so it's not an action-y thriller. It's like a, a procedural planning and having your plan tested. And uh, and it's done in a big high mainland China style where there's crane shots galore and lots of whooshing around and super high energy. If you took the non-action parts of John Woo, added Tony Scott's sensibility, and then 
multiplied those by Bollywood, you would have the style of this film. So it's big and brash and propels this premise, which is cool enough uh, for this to be a remake of another movie that had this premise. <laughs> Uh, despite a storied career, I've managed to avoid seeing any Francois Ozan films, not from any uh, direct desire, but more just luck of the draw. Double Lover came out in 2017, so I have no excuse except that uh, one of the characters, uh, one of the actors' names sounds like Jeremy Renner, and I might have just been <laughs> avoiding it on that basis. Yes, but I'm still waiting for the Jeremy Renier, Jeremy Renner face off movie. Exactly. That would be a film yeah. indeed. But D Double Lover is not that film. It's a whole different film, right? Right. Uh, and so this is a, a young woman who's troubled. She uh, goes to a psychotherapist. He is afraid because she is shockingly beautiful because she is played by Marine Bosch, uh, that he's going to fall in love with her. And indeed, he cuts uh, their therapy short. Uh, she figures, oh, well, I'm cured. And he says, well, actually, I <laughs> fell in love with you. I got, can't be your therapist anymore. And, of course, they shack up together. Feeling is mutual. But it turns out uh, that she's also still, you know, her uh, emotional troubles kind of come back. She can't go to her partner now for therapy. So she uh, seeks out another person. Turns out to be absolutely identical to him. And it turns out that something weird is going on. And that thing sort of rifles through a series of possible suspense cinema worlds. Ozan is uh, very interested in being in a dialogue with genre, which is why it surprises me that you uh, have not seen his films. And I recommend, like, he's got a ton of really fascinating things that I think you would really dig. I, I, I blame I blame Kif. Right. And yeah, if he's out of favor with your festival, uh, that would explain it. So first it seems, oh, this is kind of Hitchcockian, sort of Marnie-like. And then, oh, wait a minute, here's some De Palma creeping in. And oh, here's a little bit of Cronenberg. And so it's a stylish two-hander in which one of the actors is playing two parts and uh is uh i'm not sure it's where i would tell people to start with those on but uh as a fan i uh, quite dug it so it's a dark uh, psychological drama with uh, where the twists keep coming i was actually thinking about seeing the paper tigers but 2020 kind of interfered it's by kwok botran and it's a uh, sort of galoot martial arts comedy thing. Am I understanding that correctly? Actually, the tone is quite different. So this is an American indie film that has quite good fight sequences in it and is set in the world of martial arts, but it's also an indie drama about a man played by Alan Oy trying to, you know, remain connected to uh, his kid and, uh, you know, be a good dad uh, while at the same time reunites with the two martial arts students that he was uh, uh, with as in a garage dojo because their Sifu from the time has been killed and there's something mysterious about it. And so what it is, is a fun martial arts film that is also a comedy, but it's a character comedy. It's not a the sort of goofy tone that you expect when you hear martial arts comedy. It's not like Kung Fu Hustle or the things that, that, that inspired it, like Dirty Ho. This is like a realistic grounded movie with realistic grounded martial arts by people whose knees are wrecked <laughs> and haven't an, an, so, out of shape. So it's related. It's finally a movie with representation is what you're saying. Y yes. It, yeah. it represents those of us who's, uh, whose knees are wrecked. Yes. The next one in our list is a family Japanese film, Michihito Fuji, another 2020 film. And this one, besides the Yakuza being in it, why else is it in our segment? Well, because we have a crime blotter. <laughs> we talk <laughs> right. about crime films, so this is why we're talking about a Yakuza movie. And it's available under a bunch of different titles. There's also Yakuza in the family. There's another title, but on Netflix, which is where it is, because it's a Netflix production. Netflix is 
spending more money on the Japanese film industry than the rest of the Japanese in film industry and making these handsomely mounted productions. And this is the first uh, Yakuza rise through the ranks from the young guy. Uh, so basically, it's uh, a young man who he loses his father to a, a drug addiction and then reluctantly allows himself to sort of be adopted uh, into the Yakuza and begins to regard this one particular boss as kind of a surrogate father. That's all normal standard stuff. That's gangster movies all the way back to the 20s. Yeah, which I would be up for. But this is the first film that really fully acknowledges what has happened in Japan with the Yakuza in that they finally passed uh, essentially equivalent of RICO laws that had, you know, not just teeth to them, but are in fact extremely draconian. And the back of the Yakuza has been broken. And so this is the first film that really seriously goes into that rather than having gangsters say, well, it's not like it used to be, which is a standard gangster thing, and then go on to be a standard gangster movie. So this is an interesting drama that pursues the reality of the current situation in a way that I hadn't seen before. The, the next movie is one that I, again, I'm going to have to blame poor Jeremy Renier. Uh, he's going to have to take another bullet for me. Neither Heaven Nor Earth, which is an Afghan war horror film, normally uh, one would be right down my alley. It's by Clement Cajator. It's from 2015. And it's the sort of subtle horror, not creepy monsters under the hills, I assume. Yes, exactly so. So this might also be described as a, as a story of the fantastic that is a, a dark story, but it's not, you know, dark horror thriller action beats of running away from a creature, but the sort of metaphysical horror of uh, discovering that uh, the place you're at doesn't watch you there on a deep spiritual level. So the beginning of is it messed up. was so much like an, uh, any other Afghanistan conflict movie that I went, wait, have I seen this? <laughs> and no, I hadn't because it goes in this sort of diffuse kind of twilight zone-y uh, direction. But uh, as if your taste in, in films of the fantastic allows you to go beyond the strict straight up structure of horror uh, and put it in, quite unusual context of uh, French soldiers in Afghanistan, I would uh, certainly recommend that. So if Algernon Blackwood made an Afghan war film, this is the film that would result. Yeah. Um, your job in this segment, Robin, is very simple. It is to sell Sheila on Lee Min Jae's Zombie for Sale, another South Korean film. So half the sale is already made. Right. So she likes zombies. She loves zombies. And if you like zombies, you like kind of similar films. You, so you might be interested here, oh, this is just a well-made zombie film, but it does go a step beyond that in the interesting comedic twist of the way that this uh, sort of family of scrappy underdogs, which might remind you a little of the host, uh, but the film is totally uh, different, so don't let that mislead you, decide uh, that, wait a minute, this particular zombie seems to, instead of infecting people, give them rejuvenating powers. Well, we can make a buck off this zombie. Mm. And so it is uh, that sort of fun twist on the genre because every zombie movie needs one that I think uh, moves it from the oh just another zombie movie pile uh, onto the see this pile and, along with the, the cast being charming and uh, from zombies eating cabbage to a strawberry mansion a segue that could only happen on this segment and on this podcast an American film by Kentucker Audley and Albert Burney two names unfamiliar to me why are we in a strawberry mansion Robin so it's a weird indie dreamland movie but it's set in the near future and a somewhat uh, withdrawn government official shows up at this woman's door uh, because her dreams have gone untaxed for oh. many years. So so long, in fact, that she's got them all recorded 
can on the old tape system instead of the air stick, which is what you need. And so he has to look at all of her dreams in order to tax the different elements in it, right? If there's a horse in your dream, that's 15 cents. If Mm -hmm. there's, you know, a beautiful meadow, that's that's six cents. And so he's going to go through all of this stuff. And it turns out... There's a dwarf, it's $100,000. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, but anyway, it turns out that he winds up, uh, you know, being drawn into these dreams because something uh, sinister is going on. And in fact... He winds up going on this journey of sort of adorably handcrafted sets and uh, creatures. And uh, if you, this is the kind of movie that if you didn't like it, you would call it Twee. Mm-hmm. If you hate anything that you could be called Twee, don't see this movie. But <laughs> it won me over with its very different take on the dreamland and uh, its sort of pure sensibility in that I think they're, they're Twee for real. They're not just putting it on because that's what will get you to Sundance. Right. I find a lot of Scandinavian comedies to sort of blur together. They have the same sensibility. This one on the surface sounds like it's all Scandinavian comedies. It's from Finland, which is different from other Scandinavian countries in many ways. Juso Latio and Yuka Vidgren's Heavy Trip. What is the one fun thing about this? So I'm mentioning it just because there's some SCA jokes in it. <laughs> and they know it's like joking coming from where they're where they're coming from. So it's a comedy and actually much broader than most Nordic comedies. It's like a big goofball comedy about a, a metal band uh, that's been practicing for 12 years, finally writes an original song, decides to go uh, to the big uh, Norwegian death metal fest. And uh, but like I said, SCA jokes, that's why it gets mentioned on the show. I feel like there's a, a large contingent of death metal fans in our audience. So maybe yeah, pull that one up. If you're a metalhead, if you they, they know their metal clearly much better than I do. And mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the serious metalheads who I've spoken to about this, I wouldn't even recognize the joke. So if you're a metalhead and you don't already know this, this shares your lore. All right. And uh, as always, we end on yet another South Korean thriller. So. Let's talk about The Gangster, The Cop, The Devil by Lee Won Tae uh, from 2019 and South Korea. Right. And based on a real story of all things, of, of all the Korean films, this and Midnight both seem like someone has surely picked up the remake rights and might actually make them. So this basically is the story of another serial killer. The serial killer randomly attacks people that he bumps with his car on the road. And he makes the mistake, however, of bumping the car of a brutal gangster played by uh, Ma Dong-siak, who, if you know that particular star of a Korean film, is a big, burly, giant guy who you would not want to attack, mm. even if he doesn't have a knife and you do. And in fact, that's how that comes out. He survives the attack of the serial killer and therefore gets reluctantly roped by a maverick cop into joining forces. And best kind of cop. The best, well, yeah, the only kind of cop in uh, this kind of movie. And not only helping the investigation, but turning over his gangland troops to helping uh, in the investigation. And it falters a little bit because any film that has suddenly has a courtroom in the third act, you should never do that. But it's still (laughs) worth seeing. And so I thought I should uh, mention that as the final film on my list of uh, Cartes-esque titles. However, there's an even longer list of films. I wasn't 45, so uh, go to our website or to the Patreon uh, to see the complete list of capsule reviews if you're interested in other art house titles that aren't quite so much up the podcast alley. But uh, either way, it's time for us to go refill our popcorn and soda in the brightly lit and affordable concession stand that is this next commercial.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast on the LCD screen of your heart by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Jim Nutley, Kevin H., Jason Krause, Ryan Mannix, and Scott Jones. It's time once more to uh, do the exact change dance, to uh, hang around at the bar on one and talk about distribution because... We're once more looking at the business of gaming. Mm. And this time around, things are afoot, Ken, in the world of uh, AI art. Computer programs that draw things are mm-hmm. new, but suddenly they've gotten a lot better at it, enough so that uh, sometimes you can get radically shocking results. People who've seen some of my blog posts have seen some of the goopy, vague things that you can get out of AI art machine. Well, there's a bunch of new contenders that have come along that blow those out of the water to the point where... People are not just contemplating taking art generated in this way and putting them in published work, but actually doing it. So just a few weeks ago, DriveThru now instituted a policy where they, uh, if you have AI art in your book, you have to disclose that because some people want to avoid products that do that. But the question is, given the results that you can get now and where we're at uh, now, and as we continue to go over the years, what will the audience response be to uh, having AI assets in published products? And where is this going to go? Are we uh, looking at something where the current stuff is basically like the original Jabba the Hutt animation from the re-released movies and you got to redo Jabba the Hutt every decade? Or is some of this stuff so good, so amazing and so useful that we would be fools not to use it? So Ken, I know you've been, I've been puttering with this stuff for a while. You've been a bit more of a a skeptic uh, of it than I have, but uh, what is your uh, initial feeling on on whether these things should be in, in books? Well, I mean, I think that AI art is basically clip art. I mean, there's, you know, functionally, there's not a difference between having your big pile of Dover books with cool art, public domain art that you can borrow from other places or in our modern era going to open uh, library and finding all the open art that's out there. I think the British Museum made a bunch of their art open. Library of Congress, of course, everything is open there. So there's tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of available clip art. And many people have made wonderful, wonderful game products using entirely public domain art. And the difference between using clip art and using clip art that you made yourself with Midjourney strikes me as a distinction without a difference. In no case is an artist being paid, but one assumes that in no case was an artist affordable necessarily for a lot of these projects. And if you've got a strong enough artistic sensibility to coax good results 
and good, powerful, evocative, whatever you mean by good results from Dally 2 or whichever one of these it is that lets you uh, use them license free, then you're like someone who can use Photoshop really well or someone who can use any other tool really well or someone who can use a paintbrush really well. And therefore, you're an artist. You're just using a medium that uh, already has a bunch of heads in it. Again, like a clip art book. And there's, you know, I would have thought the argument about collage as art and borrowed art died with Roy Lichtenstein. And uh, we were able to move on to other questions like, when are the writers going to get more money? <laughs> Valuable <laughs> questions like that, Robin. I mean, right. so, you know, people are going to be mad. It's Twitter. This is the universe we live in now where rage is addictive. So I don't really find it in my heart to care one way or another about the rage. I just think this is Dover art books. And I put together a whole book for Chaosium, Major Arcana for Nephilim, that was nothing but clip art. And the only thing people said to me was, that's a remarkably busy layout, Ken. Not, <laughs> well, what's the 90s? we object to you using, you know, public domain art. Right. I guess to articulate what the anxiety is, though, is first of all, there is, as you alluded to, the fear that artists are being put out of work. And I would think that, first of all, any company that has been paying artists and starts to use AI art should be using also AI art and continuing to work with artists. And there's a bunch of big reasons to do so. Specifically, you can get your artist to show you sketches and you can collaborate with them to get exactly what they wanted right. instead of giving them weird instructions and you know, occasionally getting you know, sort of what you wanted and occasionally getting something astounding that you didn't even know you wanted that you need to rewrite your book to accommodate. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's nothing about working with an actual artist that has gone away because of AI. And so I, I would think that you at least want to make the pledge that you have not zeroed out an art budget that already existed, but rather are using AI art to supplement and have more art, not having art by a computer instead of art by people. I think the level of anxiety is also attached to a number of things. Twitter first got really mad at AI art a few weeks ago when the journalist Charlie Barzell of The Atlantic posted an illustration of Alex Jones, and people were super upset about that. But in part, you could tell that he had only just started using an AI art program because it was the usual gloopy, indistinct not so great image that you get when you just start plugging prompts in and mm -hmm. you haven't put in the time to start getting really great results from. So I think people were mad that it looks so ugly. <laughs> and also why isn't the Atlantic paying for an illustration for this web article piece? And of yeah, I mean, let, let, let me say right up, up front that I, I don't object to people being mad at the Atlantic at all. I mean, <laughs> Start there, keep going. <laughs> yes, I'll file that under things I guessed you would say. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the the that is, I guess, the canonical sort of you know easy case for the for the argument that you know institutions that should know better and should at the very least put actually decent art and should, for God's sake, have a file copy of a photo of Alex Jones if they wanted to rip somebody off. That's almost like going out of your way to being a jerk. Right. But we said the Atlantic at the top. Right. Well, the, the argument was that, A, they don't actually have a budget for blog art. So, indeed, they would just use a clip image of Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. And Warzel argued that Alex Jones likes having his picture used and reused. And therefore, it was ethically superior to have a weird, gloopy picture of him and I, I think I sort of buy that. Uh, well, I <laughs> in mean, that particular, in that particular specific instance, I mean, people are also the, mad. Because it would be fun to do with Alex Jones, I think has been demonstrated 
you know, overwhelmingly to be a terrible way to base public policy. <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm not planning on, I'm not proposing any, any legislation here. Right. And another incident that I got a lot of attention, it comes closer to home because uh, Jason Allen of Incarnate Games, who, uh, when you look at his uh, site, you can see that his board games are using a lot of AI art, entered an illustration in the Colorado State Fair art competition and says that, you know, he noted on his submission that it was via mid-journey and either they, they left that information off the judges' slips or the people who run a state fair art competition didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. And so therefore a, you know, big vista piece of uh, sort of 1890s looking science fiction art won. And that, of course, angered all of the human artists who had been entered in that competition. Now, winning a state fair art competition is different than having fooling someone and having your work represented as actual physical work that you did in an art gallery is a whole different matter. But I think this, you know, if you are mad at AI art in games, that horse has already left the stable and mm -hmm. is busy creating print-on-demand products as horses are known to do. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that's what they're famous for. That and not drinking when you lead them to water like a jerk. I mean, the, this is just the same question going forward is, you know, how much of your already scant margin as a game maker, whether you're a publisher or a writer of games, a designer, can you afford to give to any other person, no matter how valuable they might be? Do you have to use clip art or AI art? Do you have to hope you didn't make any typos because you can't afford an editor? Do you have to leave off any of the other wonderful people who do wonderful work, but who selfishly want to eat and, you know, uh, pay rent. And so therefore are expensive. The, you know, the budgets for games in almost every case, I accept, you know, Wizards of the Coast and maybe a couple of other companies and obviously Asmodee, screw them. But budgets for games are always smaller than the vision for games. That's just a universal truth of any art scene. I mean, same thing with theater, same thing with film. There's always a point where you say, well, we can't do it with that, with the money we have. What can we do instead? And AI art is one of the what can we do insteads. And I don't know how you any more convincingly say I'm broke and can't manage money than by running a game company. Right. Right. Um, and I think there are also ways that artists will wind up getting paid because of the advent of AI art. First of all, there's a lot of times when it will generate an image, but each platform has different drawbacks. Hands are difficult, mm -hmm. putting the eyes in the right place. In AI art machines, having two eyes on a head is impossible. In stable diffusion, one of the eyes will be a little wall-eyed sometimes, or they'll be cross-eyed. So we're worried that we're going to replace Miro. Yeah, so if you're a uh, freelance artist and you've got some time on your docket and you want to just do some easy work, to get paid for, there's probably someone out there who's in love with an AI image except for the eye or the hand <laughs> and wants you to fix that for them. To digitally touch it up. Yeah, to, to do a uh, touch-up on that. Or, in one case, I've uh, generated something on stable diffusion where there's a creature, a new creature I introduced in an upcoming product, and I had sort of an idea of what it looked like, which was sort of like an existing creature, and okay, sure, fine. And then when I generated a bunch of variations on stable diffusion, and one of the versions is astoundingly cool. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's way better than I would have thought of. And, and often I'm finding ideas for stuff to write about or creatures because of the illustrations that it throws up. Well, the thing is, it did that once. Mm. And no matter what technique I used to get it to replicate that, 
it's never going to make that creature again. Mm -hmm. So I can see people being tempted. Okay, here's this creature. Now I need seven more poses of it. (laughs) So this may indeed be uh, part of uh, the revelation. It becomes like the photo reference you give the artist. If you're an art director, though, this is a giant pain because there are already people submitting AI art as if it is wholly self-created art. And that is an ethical problem. Uh And that's going to require every art director to familiarize themselves with the output of all of these different AIs, because there are tells. And the more you look at them, the more you go, oh, that's mid-journey, which I thought the second I saw the piece that won the state art fair, I went, oh, yep, not just AI, but oh, that's mid-journey. Right. And as these get better and better, their tells are going to go away. But in the meantime, that is a giant pain for art directors. So if you're an art director who's been sitting here being mad at AI and us not being mad at AI for the whole segment, I am, I feel your dudgeon on that one for sure, because that is a, a problem of people misrepresenting their work. Yeah. I mean, my, my insouciance about AI art should not extend and does not extend to misrepresentation. If you submit a piece of art to an art director or an art competition or anything, yeah, you say the medium, and the medium in this case is mid-journey, and it's the same as you'd say, oh, I did this in Photoshop versus I did this with, you know, pencil. Right, and that continues a problem that's already existed of people tracing photos, mm-hmm. of uh, people using swipes, which of course goes yep, a big deep thing. back into the history of comics, for example. Right, and it's just, you know, one of the many ethical pitfalls that you can pitfall into if you are busy or lazy or, God forbid, both, and it's, you know... No more acceptable in that case than any other kind of plagiarism might be because you are pretending one kind of work is another kind of work. And I, I suppose the the counter for the busy art director is to say, I like this, but give it to me again uh, from the back and lit differently. And then if they can't do it, it's like, ha ha, your stable diffusion is not so stable anymore. <laughs> Vincent yes. or whatever. Yes. Or it turns out you're stable diffusion. So, um, what people may be thinking as we near the end of this segment is, hey, wait, you, you know, skated over the, you just said, these are super incredibly useful in play at the game table, but you didn't talk about that. Well, that's because this is the business of gaming. Right. In a couple of weeks, we'll come back to this and start uh, talking about from the point of view of using these and generating these things and using them as a GM or a player in play. Uh, so we'll circle back to this. Uh, so, you know, just by tackling this and Krungus, we've not finished with this topic because I think no. it's something well, I mean, that's going to... It's a big art venue and it's only going to get bigger, as we alluded to. And uh, that means it's rife for creative misuse, the best kind of misuse. Right. Well, on that note, it's time for us to get in an arc and uh, drive over this uh, flooded area to the high and dry segment on the other side. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. 
From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance the Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, Ken, the uh, Time Incorporated is in a czar-kicking mood. Like you do. And they would uh, like you to go and uh, see if you can fix up the Polish January Uprising. And uh, as per usual, that means you starting by telling our listeners exactly when and what that was. Well, it was in February, as the name indicates. <laughs> January by the old calendar. Again, all these dates are going to be Julian dates, mostly. I did not go through and rectify them. Uh, live with it, people. It's just 11 days. You'll figure it out. So the Russians, at the time of our story, as when our story opens, the Russians have just been whipped in the Korean War. So it's 1856. 1856. It's not super soundly whipped, but it's whipped enough that Russian military logistics have been exposed as a paper tiger, great discontent in the army, great dissatisfaction in the land. Tsar Nicholas conveniently dies. The new Tsar is Alexander II, and everyone's like, oh, great, we have a new Tsar. Everything's going to be great now. A lot of people in Poland said that a little too loud, and so he came to Warsaw in 1856, and he said, forget any dreams, gentlemen. <laughs> That's a very Russian leader thing to say. A very Russian leader thing. And then he goes, because his big plan is to emancipate all the serfs. He's wanted to do that since he was a little Tsarevich. And now that his dad is dead, he can do it. And he's uh, setting it out. And every part of Russia is told by the Tsar, it would be a good idea if you had a plan to emancipate your serfs, because if you let us do it, you're not going to like how it comes out. And so an agricultural commission gets established in Poland to study the problem. And this is where Time Incorporated goes, wait, wait a minute. Why do we send Ken to kick the guy who's emancipating the serfs? <laughs> it's like, well, because many bad people do good things. CF autobonds or Cuban literacy. Anyhow, the Polish Agricultural Commission, because, of course, Poland, like every country in 1856, except two, is a primarily agricultural country. That becomes the place you take all your problems and it sort of becomes a de facto parliament or zem and a constitutional convention because who pays for the serfs what powers do they have what rights do they have do they get to vote does anyone get to vote these are all big questions um there is a polish administrator who is put in charge by russia named Wielopolski, who is attempting to guide this process to get back to the pre-1830 constitution of poland which was as a separate kingdom under the personal authority of the Russian Tsar, but with some limited parliamentary powers and ability of self-government. Uh, he wants this because he's Polish, and he wants this because he sees how the end of the 1830 revolt went, which was terribly, and the uh, restriction of, of Polish freedoms. So there's two factions on the commission. The Whites, which are basically the Wielopolski 
sympathetic guys. They're aristocrats mostly. They want that constitutional government within Russia. And most importantly, when you free the serfs, they want to be paid for the loss of the labor. That's their big thing. The other faction is known as the Reds. There being only two colors to the Polish flag. You're out now. They are the more radical Democrats. They want independence from Russia. And they want to just free the serfs and give them all the land and let the chips fall where they may. This uh, manages to sort of drive the conversation in a more radical direction because every time some part of Poland moves towards the Russian government, another part loudly moves away in order to stunt on the whites. And so the Russians see all these people, you know, protesting ever more loudly, putting out pamphlets. Right. And so when we said free the serfs, we didn't mean free the serfs. Free service. the serfs. Well, what they also don't want is the part where Poland is democratic and independent. They really hate that. And so Russian troops fire on a church parade in February of 1861, kills five people. In uh, April of 1861, they kill 200 people in a protest. Then in October, they basically lower martial law over most of the country. The churches close in protest of that first killing. So the Russians say, all right, you're closed. You're all closed. And they grab up a bunch of uh, bishops and other powerful Catholic uh, priests, and they toss them in prison. And so that is where Poland sits. And so a central national committee is formed of the more radical whites and all of the reds. And they say, we are going to mount a national revolt and we're going to do it in the summer of 1863, which is when a Russian land charter is scheduled to expire and have to be renegotiated. And when that happens, they expect there will be giant riots amongst the Russian peasantry and the Russian military will be distracted. And they make a deal with a Russian radical group called Land and Liberty, which is fomenting mutinies in the Russian army. And they think if we can launch our revolution coordinated for all of this, we're going to be ready. The Russians are not unaware of this because of the habit of revolutionaries of the period of writing up all their plans in broadsides and stapling the sides of walls. So a Russian general named Fyodor Berg is assigned to by the Grand Duke Constantine, who's technically in charge of Poland, told to go investigate the CNC, comes back and says he's discovered only one thing, namely that I don't belong to it. And one assumes that the Grand Duke Constantine gave him one of those looks. And uh, he says, oh, and neither does your Imperial Highness. So he may have been a bit of a, a of a bent wheel on this, but Land and Liberty over in Russia is violating OPSEC in glorious fashion. And so they get arrested in August of 1862, and they give up the name of one of the members of the CNC, a guy named uh, Jaroslav Dabrowski, and he's arrested as well. And that sort of beheads the Land and Liberty cell. And that also uh, interrogating Dabrowski and his associates begins to paint a picture of what's going on. Vilipolsky says, I know what will fix this. We'll just move the annual conscription into the Russian army up from June when it normally happens after planting to January. And we're also going to only conscript landless people, which means no landowners, no serfs, just I don't know, middle-class students looking hard at revolutionaries. And so the CNC faced with the draft, they say, well, we can dodge the draft. And of course, Vilipolsky's like, well, if you're dodging the draft, you're under arrest for dodging the draft. What a perfect plan I've come up with. So the CNC basically declares the revolt in January, hence the January uprising, January 22nd, old style calendar. Uh, they do this without having laid any of their important rising type groundwork. So there are 20,000 at 
the high end, 10,000 at the low end estimate of fighters who rise up, mostly in Poland, but by February also in Lithuania. They're facing 90,000 Russian soldiers of the garrison. They have no unified territory. They have no heavy weapons. They have most crucially no foreign support. They'd expected maybe Prussia would help out. Bismarck signed a treaty with Russia in February that said, we don't like revolts in Poland, given that we own a third of it. So we'll help you. We'll shut the border and we'll let you ride on Prussian railroads if you need to, to put down Polish uh, rebels. That's the kind of guy Otto von Bismarck was. They were hoping maybe the French would come in. Napoleon III had a, a half-Polish foreign minister. He was, of course, uh, Napoleon had given uh, Poland its quote-unquote liberty. So there was a, a family thing. But he senses maybe not a giant appetite in the French population for another land war in Russia. And also, he doesn't want a war with Prussia. He feels like that would be a terrible idea. He should have kept to that thought. Briefly, he suggests, how about Austria? And uh, we could go in together. And Austria says, we're not inviting the French into Germany. What are we idiots? And Austria has its own problems because Hungary, the other half of Austria, Hungary, is eagerly supplying the Poles with arms and uh, fighters. So there's a trickle, not necessarily a big trickle of weapons and arms from Hungarian Galicia, which is the Hungarian part of Poland that they got in the partition. But enough of it gets through that the war expands. And by summer, it's 35,000 somewhat better armed fighters. They've managed to seize Russian arsenals by now. But the Russians, of course, have also reinforced. Uh, the CNC becomes a national council in February of 1863. All the imprisoned uh, bishops swear allegiance to them. It becomes a national uprising. And this begins to lose the support of the Russian radicals who are like, well, we are not in favor of Polish nationalism. We're in favor of socialism for everybody. Uh, so there's a lot of bad feelings there. In Christmas of 1863, the home government, the, the National Council, frees all Polish serfs with their land. But by then, they don't control very much of the land. This is an attempt to get the serfs to rise up. And in February of 1864... We're freeing you, so go fight for us. Go fight for us. Russia crushes the last surviving Polish army. Austria finally clamps down on Hungary and declares martial law on the Galician border. And in March of 1864, the Tsar also frees all the Polish serfs with their land. So the Polish serfs who did not go out and fight over the winter look pretty smart. Um, in April... The National Council is captured by Russian troops. They're all hung in August. And the last bit of the, re of the rebellion is stamped out in Lithuania in 1865. General Mikhail Hangman Muraviov, no relation to the Mikhail Muraviov, who was the butcher of Kiev in 1918, executes 400 rebels and deports 80,000 Poles to Siberia, the biggest deportation from Poland until World War II, bans the Polish language. Poland is renamed Vistula Province. Military governors are put in charge of all the sub-provinces. Gigantic taxes are meant to bankrupt the landlords who started all this nonsense. And they seize all the church property. And uh, Poland is once more under the Russian boot heel until 1918. And that is the sad but uh, perhaps inevitable story of the January uprising. But inevitable is only so inevitable if one has a time machine. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to throw a chrono wrench into this uh, sequence of events? All right. Well, you're never going to get the Polish council in a position to actually win in a fair fight. There's too few of them. They don't have enough weapons. They're, they don't have a national territory. And they're one international supporter. It's not, you're not quite talking, you know, North Korea can flee into China type situation. It's, it's not, 
as clear cut as that. So they're in a very, very bad pickle. The key is, does the planned Russian mass revolt of the peasantry work out? And that depends on Russian radicals not being entire simpletons. And there's a big roundup of Russian radicals in 1862, as I mentioned, and uh, some of them were put in a prison with remarkably poor security. And in prison, they wrote this manifesto called Young Russia that blew up and it was super radical. And it uh, startled the, at that point, still nascent Russian secret police into cracking down. And that was the crackdown that managed to snare Dombrovsky and uh, Chernyevsky and, and the leaders of Land and Liberty. So the first thing is you either get proper security in that Russian prison or you distract the imprisoned Russian radicals with infighting. I think both are possible. Only one of them even takes vodka, I think. And so if you can do that, you can then also get Chernevsky's first bunch of letters to the czar published instead of his novel, What is to be Done, which is the book that inspired Lenin, for example, it became his motto. So rather than write this radical novel, he says, hey, letter to the czar, let's talk about stuff and presents a more open face of the of the reform movement. And email is a lot easier to write than novels. So it's got to be true of letters, too, even when people wrote letters. Yes. Nothing can be easier to, to write than what is to be done, which is a terrible novel in on every level. But if you can get Chernevsky to not publish this radical work that gets him arrested and shipped to Siberia, then you don't have the roundup that grabs Dabrowski. You have a longer period of time for the Polish National Council to plan, and they can indeed launch their rebellion when planned, ideally, in August, or at least a little bit later with the plans further advanced and time it with this peasant uprising that is scheduled to happen. Now, in our history, because of those crackdowns, the peasant uprising also didn't happen. So it's sort of a bank shot to begin with. And the famed Russian mutinies that Land and Liberty were fomenting turned out to be literally one guy. <laughs> and he said, Men, join me to fight for socialism and democracy. And his men shot him. And that was the end of the revolt. So even in the best possible circumstances, I do not give us super high odds of carrying out uh, the dream of Time Incorporated of an independent Poland in 1863. But it is possible that if you're able to foment that uprising, that the mutinies will then follow as Russia flails around incompetently trying to stop the uprising and brutalizes its own soldiers as happened in Crimea and in every other Russian war. And then maybe with the Russian army mutinying with the Polish government, actually able to hold territory with the internal uh, affairs of Russia in turmoil. Maybe that's when Napoleon the third says, ah, screw it. I'm going in and sends the French Navy into the Baltic to support the Polish and Lithuanian uprising. And then you actually have a, a real a chance of something happening. And that would be, you know, late summer of 1863, uh, a French expeditionary force lands in uh, Riga or somewhere. And uh, off we go to the races. And uh, history hopefully changes. And maybe even the British have to come in to pull Napoleon's uh, chestnuts out of the fire. You do lose about 5,000 Polish soldiers for the Union, because that's what happened to a lot of Polish soldiers uh, when they were being arrested. They fled to America instead and joined up to free a whole bunch of different serfs. But that is, I think, 
probably doable on the on, on the outside. And if you're going to uh, set a uh, role playing scenario during the actual history, uh, when do you do it, and uh, what is the mission that the player characters have? Well, I mean, if if you're not nerd troping it, then I feel like you're just playing a you know a version of gray ranks with fancier outfits because you are doomed. This is not going to end well. If you're nerd troping it, you might have some, you know, sacred artifact like the Black uh, Madonna of Sestachua that you have to smuggle out over the last rat line to Galicia before the border closes. And the Russians, of course, are using, you know, werewolves or something bad and awful to hunt you. But again, uh, a lot of this is is going to wind up background unless you are actually Polish. And therefore, all of these political machinations and personalities mean something to you uh, one way or the other, because uh, like all politics and certainly like all radical politics, a lot of it is personalities uh, is what dr- gives it its individual flavor and its individual taste. Because on a military level, as I said, it's a doomed uprising. And unless Russia conveniently falls apart at the same time, the ending is going to be the same. Uh, Hangman Moraviov is going to come in and, and close everything out. And it's just not going to be pleasant. Well, just remember, you're going to get to fight werewolves because I was trying to find a somewhat upbeat note to end the podcast on. And I guess... Being having your knee ripped off by a lycanthrope is, is as good as I'm going to get. So stick with us next week. Maybe we'll have a, a glimmer of hope in one of our segments. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astvagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Defy the efforts of Bizarre to quash this podcast by joining such resolute backers as... Scott Stefanski. Ryan McClelland. Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia. And Jan Zaleski. Where this show are Drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwitch Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>